If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah yes, the magnificent Trolley Sourbright Crawler, also known as Trollicus brightolus. The worm's captivating neon colour makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolley! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolley.com to shop now. Trolley, eat me! I think it just challenges the idea that, that Tudors were all white, as, as you say, that is portrayed in, in films and novels and, and things like that. And I think it also challenges the Windrush myth that the Africans only appeared here in the middle of the 20th century. And it shows that, that England had a much more diverse history over the centuries than, than we expect. That was Miranda Kaufman discussing the lives of black people in Tudor England. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from Dr. Miranda Kaufman who's a historian based at the University of London. She's the author of a new book entitled Black Tudors, which explores the lives of a number of Africans who made England their home in the 16th century. Miranda was one of the speakers at our History Weekend event in York a few days ago, and after her talk, she spoke to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. 
I thought we could start with quite a general question. So there's this popular idea that um, black people or people of African origin first arrived in England in 1948. So when the Windrush docked at Tilbury, you mentioned this in the opening introduction to your book. Um, why do you think that this preconception exists? And why, why don't we know much about the people who came to England in, for example, the Tudor period? Why is it a hidden part of history? Well, I think um, the, the Windrush, there's a lot of video footage and photographs, and so it's all quite, and it's relatively recent, so people know that story. But with the Black Tudors, the, the, the records are much more hard to get hold of, and there, there's not so many pictures, that's for sure. And so um, I think it's, you know, I think, as I said in the book, you know, people haven't asked those questions of the past. They didn't think to ask, well, were there any Africans in Tudor England? It just wasn't something that people thought have thought about in the past. But, you know, now um, scholars are beginning to ask those questions and that's why we're finding out what these things that we didn't previously know. And what drew you to this area? Like, what, what made you write this book? Well, I, I just was got curious about it, really, because um, I was, you know, it, it, it's been a long gestation, this project. It started as my when I was doing my master's and doctorate at Oxford. And I, it all started when I heard in a lecture that, um, that, that the Tudors had started trading to Africa in the middle of the 16th century, which is something I didn't know. And I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to know more about that encounter, what the Tudor sailors thought of the Africans and what the Africans thought of the Tudor sailors. And uh, I started reading around that, and that's when I found this reference saying that there had actually been Africans in Tudor England, which was a big surprise and I just wanted to know more about it but there didn't seem to be that much written about it so that's when I had to go start searching in the archives for myself. So in terms of like the evidence that you've looked at how did you go about finding these people? Uh, well I got in touch with an organisation called the Black and Asian Studies Association and uh, that one of their members had written a short um, piece for History Today magazine about um, black Tudors and um, so I got in touch with her and she, she gave she shared, you know, the one what she'd found out with me and then I built on that. So for example, she would she knew of you know, a couple of parish registers that had Africans in them, but they don't she'd only seen one entry. But if I went back I went back to those parish registers and read through them in in more detail and found more more information and like that. So I know that we don't look at the demographics of Tudor England in your book. That's not what it's about. It's about the individuals. But what sort of numbers are we looking at? Uh, well, I found about 200 Africans in Tudor England. But I was also looking at a longer period for my doctorate, so up to 1640. And in that period, I found 360-odd Africans. There could be more, but that's how many I found. It sounds maybe a stupid question, but how do you know that they were, of, how how do you know they were black? Yeah. Uh, well, they're, um, they're described, um, I only chose ones that were actually described as African rather than just having a strange surname or something. Uh, you can't assume everyone with the surname Black or Moore was African. But so it's, so they're, in the, they're described, the most popular term was Blackamore. So it'll say something like John, a Blackamore was buried on this day or whatever. Uh, and, uh, but there are other, some of them are called Negars or N-E-G-A-R or Ethiop or um, more and you know so they're described like that so that's how you know that okay so it would be wrong to go purely off a surname you can't assume someone's race through their surname I don't think so no 
So people who learn about the presence of Africans in Tudor England um, might assume that their experience was one of enslavement uh, or racial discrimination. Um, But this isn't true, according to what you've written in your book. So what can you tell us about the status of the people that you've been looking at? How do they fit in society? Uh, Well, they're free in the eyes of the law. There's no law of slavery in England, so they're not enslaved. Uh, a lot of them were working as domestic servants, but are doing, uh, you know, real real work within those households. There's a porter, there's a laundry maid, there's uh, a cook, um, a, a gardener. You know, so they're doing real jobs within those households. They're not decorative playthings, or you know, that that's something that I think comes later. And some of them were self-employed, so have independent tradespeople like Reasonable Blackman the Silk Weaver, there's a needle maker in 1540s Cheapside, there's uh, you know Catalina of Almondsbury who owns a cow uh, so so there's they're doing a few different things. There are people just visiting like Prince Dederijakawa who's just staying in London for a couple of years learning English and then he goes back to Africa. So, so there's quite a range of, of people. And the attitude at the time what would um the Tudor Tudor people make of Africans in England did they have the same idea about race as what came later would there be racism or would they be preoccupied with other forms of prejudice yeah like I say in the book I think that the prejudices that existed were much more based around class and religion so you know an ambassador is going to be treated differently to someone who's just come off a, a captured Spanish ship and you know religiously as well if you were if you weren't a protestant then you were you know penalized and treated worse than if you were i didn't find any explicit evidence of extreme racism really i, don't, I mean i think racism as a concept is something that probably you know works evolves later so what evidence is there for how africans were sort of treated in england's churches and courts you spoke a bit about the legal system in your talks yeah they were they were allowed to testify in court which is a big deal because um you know slaves aren't allowed to testify in court so the fact that they are allowed to shows that they were considered free in the eyes of the law uh you know their testimony is given equal weight to, to other people's testimonies uh which is significant and you know the way that they're accepted in, by the church um in baptism marriage and burial sort of shows a sort of a different level of acceptance into Tudor society as well, because it was such a religious society uh, that you know allowing them to be baptized was was a big deal. So, some historians argue that sort of what happened in colonial America with sort of chattel slavery was perhaps um, linked to 16th century England and the sort of the attitudes there. But what what would your response to that be? Well, I just don't think... I think that what was happening in colonial America is just quite different to what happened in England. And so I think uh, historians need to look again at that early history of of Virginia and and, um, the early colonies to sort of question why uh, they developed the way they did. And I think it's more to do with, like, the economic uh, imperative to... um, yeah, the, 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 new, the new crops that they were working with in the new world required slave labour, whereas that wasn't the case in England. You talk a bit in the book about people coming onto English shores and could they could be free there. Was, was that um, true? Could a, a slave come to England and be free? 
That was certainly what was said at the time, that if you set foot on English soil, you became free. Is there any evidence that that actually happened? Did anyone come over? There's a, a guy called Pero Alvarez who tells the King of Portugal that he was set free by King Henry VII of England and the King of Portugal accepts that status. And then there's another man called Diogo who comes to England in 1614 with an English pirate and he again reports back to the Portuguese Inquisition later that he was set free, in, that he became free in England because in that reign, nobody is a slave, he said. Um, so let's talk specifically about the people in your book. How and why did they come to England? Do we know like some of their, their motives? Uh, was it just um, circumstantial? Like, maybe give some examples. I don't think many, many Africans came to England completely of their own free will. I think that um, there were three main ways in which they, they came here. Some came directly from Africa as a result of the trade between England and Africa that was developing at this period, um, like Dedere Jakawa. And he, we, he, we, it's, it's not entirely clear whether he wanted to come to England or not, but he, um, there are reasons why he might have done, because the, his kingdom was beginning to trade with the English. So coming to England, you could, you know, he could learn English, which would be useful for trading. He could... Um, you know, find out more about the markets here and what, what would sell and what, you know, what his goods would, would be like in that marketplace. And so the baptism record for him says that his father had sent him to England to be baptised. So that's quite interesting. Um, but And we know that he did go home and that he did start um, working as a trade factor when English merchants showed up. So so that's quite interesting. Um, this, the uh, the second way that Africans came here was via Southern Europe. So there were a lot more Africans in Spain, Portugal, and some in Italy than there were in England. So when, for example, when Catherine of Aragon comes to England in 1501, we think John Blank was in her entourage. Other Africans come with with um, European merchants, and uh, like some of the Portuguese Jewish merchants in London had Africans in their households. Uh, and the third way is through privateering. So when Francis Drake was raiding the Caribbean or capturing Spanish ships, other privateers as well, if they're capturing Spanish ships, then there's quite often Africans on board the ships or certainly in Spanish ports, and they get brought back that way as well. So you look at 10 individuals in total, um, and your books, it's sort of like an anthology of miniature biographies of these different people. Um, so one person that I found really interesting was Jack Francis, who was... Um, one of the divers, actually, who went down and excavated Mary Rose. So, yeah, would you like to tell me a bit about this man, Jack? Uh, well, he says he's born on an island off the coast of Guinea he, in, the, in, the, in the 1520s. We, we know that by the time he was 18, he was working in Southampton for this Venetian called Peter Paolo Corsi, uh, and they're diving to try and salvage guns from the Mary Rose but then they get accused of stealing tin from the wreck of another ship called the Sancta Maria and Sanctus Eduardus. And uh, that gets them into court, and that's where we find out more, more about him is in the court records. And he gives, he's a, a witness in the case, and he gives testimony in support of his master. Um, so we, we know that he would have been a skilled diver what, I'm really curious about this. So diving in the 16th century, like what would that look like? Would, would he just swim? Would, would there be any equipment that he wore to like, you know, we have today, we'd have scuba diving, but back then, what, how would he dive down to this ship? 
Well, there's this skill that still does happen today called free diving, which is diving without equipment. And um, if you, you have to start quite young, I think, but if you uh, you can, you know, train yourself to to breathe and to equalise the pressure in your ears and do things that, that you mean that you can dive without equipment. But there are there is some equipment that we th- that would have been available to them to use at the time. So maybe a form of diving bell, which is a you know, a bell that you submerge under the water and then it holds a pocket of air in it so you can swim under there and get, breathe a bit more and then go out again. Uh, or they had, um, they would tie stones to, you know, to rope and put them over their shoulders to weigh them down to get them to the ocean floor. Um, so what was the verdict? What happened with the court case? We don't know because the, ver- the verdict doesn't survive, unfortunately. Oh, no. Okay. So we don't know what happened to him. Well, we don't, yeah, we don't know what happened to Jack Francis. We know that um, Corsi gets imprisoned in the Tower of London, uh, in, uh, you know, a few months later because, but not for not because of the result of the court case, but because he's gone off to do some salvage work for the Earl of Arundel, whereas, uh, you know, he was still meant to be doing the Mary Rose. So, they, the, the the king, you know, the the, the king gets cross with him and throws him in the tower. Let's talk about the man in Chapter 5. His name was Reasonable Black Man, which is an incredible name. Um, I know you mentioned that names aren't necessarily a good signifier of a person, but his name just seems so particularly interesting. Does it tell us anything about him? Well, maybe he was very reasonable <laughs> uh, in his... You know, I've, I feel like it sounds like a kind of trading name almost to sort of... Uh, uh, you know, to 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 reflect um, his reasonable prices, perhaps when he's um, weaving silk for you, I don't know, but it it could be some kind of nickname. I mean, you know, they did have nicknames um, like that in the Tudor period. So okay, um, he was um, a silk weaver. Would you like to tell me about his life? Unfortunately, we don't really know that much about him, except that he was living in Southwark in the Elizabethan period in, from about 1579, probably, um, and that he had a family there. We don't know anything about his wife, but he was married because the records are actually the records of the baptism and burials of his children. So um, you know, the fact that they're not described as bastard children means that the parents must have been married and unfortunately, two of them die in the plague um, in fifteen ninety-two. I think. Uh, yeah, they they die they die, they die of the plague, and that's that's quite sad. But that's that's the last we, we hear of the family, really. Was his wife also? Um, was was she black? Too? Well, we don't really know. But just you know, given given the the relatively few small numbers of Africans in Tudor London, it, I think it's more likely that she was English. I think like a misconception that people might have is that people coming over from Africa would have been servants and very like you know in the low levels, but some of them moved in sort of the higher echelons of society. Um, so, for example, John Blank in the opening chapter, he was a musician in the court of Henry VIII. Uh, yeah, so uh, John Blank played the trumpet for Henry VII and Henry VIII. Um, he, we don't again. We don't know where he came from exactly, or quite how he got here. We think, you know, we think that he probably came with Catherine of Aragon when she came to to England to marry Prince Arthur in fifteen o one. But there's no direct evidence for that. Um, but he, um, he, 
uh, he we know he played at the coronation of Henry VIII and the funeral of Henry VII, not in that order. Um, and he was paid wages. He was paid eight pence a day under Henry VII. And then when Henry VIII comes to the throne, he asks for a wage increase, and he, it's granted. So then he's paid fifteen pence, uh, sorry, sixteen pence a day. Uh, and uh, he, we know he goes on to play in the Westminster tournament. Uh, which was a big uh, jousting tournament that Henry VIII um, commissioned to celebrate um, the birth of a son to him and Catherine of Aragon, who was unfortunately very short-lived. But they had this big jousting tournament and it it was uh, depicted in the Westminster tournament role. This was in 1511. And the role is a sort of six-foot-long manuscript and vellum painting all the knights you know riding to the joust and the jousting scene in the middle and then everyone processing away from it as well and um john blank's depicted twice in that in that westminster role oh wow playing the trumpet is he the only black man in this scroll then in the the pictures so let's talk about some of the women in your book and cobby is quite an interesting one so she worked in a brothel in the 1620s um yeah what do we know about her uh, well, we know she was working in the in this brothel belonging to John and Jane Banks in St Clement's Danes in Westminster, and she appears in the court case uh, when the Bankses are brought to court for for keeping a brothel which was illegal before the Westminster Sessions Court, uh, and one of the other um, prostitutes um, talks about her and court says you know that she calls her a tawny moor, which means she has relatively fair skin so uh, that could mean she came from somewhere in North Africa or possibly I'm thinking that maybe she could have been uh, the child of an African and, and an English person perhaps uh, but um, she so she um, of course she's a tawny moor and uh, according to to the other woman men were willing to pay you know much more to lie with her than they would another woman because of her soft skin Working as a prostitute in London, was she earning quite a lot of money? Was she, you know, was she making a success of this, or was it sort of a struggle? Do we know what being a prostitute in London at this time was like? Well, you get the impression. I mean, insofar as you can tell, that she's she's doing quite well. But you know, because she's working in the brothel, she has to give possibly half her pay to to the board to um, to Mrs. Banks. Possibly, mm-hmm. uh, but um, I think uh, they say they give a. It says in the in the ref record that, that that the men would give a piece to lie with her, and I think a piece was twenty two shillings, uh, which is quite quite a substantial amount compared with what other people were earning at the time. I think it all depends how many customers she had, I suppose. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, were there other black prostitutes in England at this time? Do we have any record of them, or is she unusual? I think she is quite unusual. I didn't find much more evidence in this period. Uh, in you know, the, the, um, people have looked through the Bridewell records, which are quite a key source for prostitutes at the time. But there's no, there's more evidence of African men visiting English prostitutes than the other way around. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. I think I've, I've touched on this a little bit. So we know that Anne Cobby had sex with white men, obviously outside of marriage as a prostitute, but do we know if there were interracial relationships and were they accepted at this time? Would there have been the outrage that there might have been later on. Yeah, so there are records of marriages in the parish registers between African people and English people. Um, there's a few more with African men marrying English women, but there is at least one example of an African woman marrying an English man, and that's in Bristol in the early, um, in the early 17th century, about 1603, I think. And like you said before, people were more concerned with... Um, class and religion so I presume if if like they were of the same class and religion then it probably have been accepted would, or is that something we can't possibly know? I think yeah it's difficult to know but I didn't find any explicit evidence of, of people being hostile to those relationships I think there may have been more curiosity there's a there's a quote from a man called George Best in 1578 who says you know, he's seen a, an Ethiopian as black as coal taking a fair English woman to wife and begetting a, a son as black as the father. So there's that curiosity about um, what, what, the, pro- the products of those relationships and you know, skin colour and how that's transmitted through the generations. But I don't think it's, it's, uh, I don't think it's a hostile um, feeling there's another moment in the book where there's the is there a baptism of um i think it's a black woman and it says in the records that quite a lot of people went to it and i think you've you sort of ponder on whether this was because it was sort of you know it was people were curious it was something they'd never seen before yeah that was the baptism of mary phyllis of morisco in 1597 okay so that's she's one of the other chapters yeah tell me about her uh, well, she came to, to England from Morocco when she was about six or seven in 1583 or four, and she goes to work for John Barker, a merchant. Um, so it's possible that he was trading to Morocco, especially because he had a relationship with the Earl of Leicester, who was um, head of the, the governor of the Barbary Company, who were set up to trade to Morocco. So it's possible that that's how she got here. Um, and then she she switches jobs. She goes to work for a seamstress in East Smithfield called Millicent Porter. Um, and so possibly she, she learnt the art of seam, being a seamstress as well. Uh, and, and then she get you know, Millicent Porter seems to encourage her to get baptised. And she I think when she's 20 years old, she gets baptised uh, at St Bottles Oldgate. Oh, I was actually going to ask, because you mentioned the Earl of Leicester and sort of the trading. Um, what was the sort of situation at the time with England's ties with Africa? What sort of extent was like trading going on? And, you know, what were the links between um, England and Africa at this time? Uh, well, the most, the strongest trade was with Morocco, which starts in 1551. And by 1558, there's a regular trade with Morocco, with English factors resident in, in, in Morocco, in Moroccan ports, uh, 
And yeah, apparently before before the 1620s, there are actually more English people living in North Africa than in North America, which is a you know, fact that I always thought was amazing. And then there is a bit more of an exploratory trade with, with what they call Guinea, which is sort of more like the west coast of Africa. Um, and, you know, by, by the sort of... And towards the end of the, of the 16th century, they are beginning to get as far as um, the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. So they're sort of slowly making their way down, down the west coast of, of Africa. Um, but those voyages are a bit more... Um, uh, unstructured not 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 sort of reg- as regular okay. but then the east india company starts um you know going trading in, towards the end of this period as well and they stop off on the coast of africa um so quite a general question um, what's which story in the book which person is most interesting to you which if you had to pick a favorite i quite enjoyed re- writing about um Dedari jakawa and and the um like learning about the uh, that uh, that early trade with with Africa and the different commodities and you know imagining him coming to London and uh, that I think that was that was quite interesting, uh, but it was all it was all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, all of them were interesting to you. Um, were there any actually stories that you set out to include but had to disregard or like how how did you go about choosing these well, people? I mean, I chose them because they were the ones we knew most about, you know, from the source records. Um, there was, there were a couple of chapters that got cut, but um, I tried to incorporate them into the book in other places, like um, uh, Maria, the uh, the African woman who gets abandoned, heavily pregnant on an island in Indonesia by Francis Drake, originally had her own chapter, but because she'd never actually set foot on English soil, we decided that, that she didn't really count as a black Tudor. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But she gets incorporated into um, the chapter on Diego. I enjoyed writing the chapter on Diego as well. That was a good one. Yeah, tell me about him. Uh, Well, he... um, uh, Diego uh, joined... Francis Drake was raiding um, Nombre de Dios in Panama in 1572, and Diego uh, runs up to some of his ships and says, you know, demands to be taken on board even though they're shooting at him. And he gets on board and he warns the English that they're, you know, in danger, uh, that the Spaniards are going to come and get them in Nombre de Dios. Uh, and he, he gets, he gets uh, you know, onto the, the English ships and uh, helps them connect with the Cimarroons, who were Africans who'd escaped from the Spanish and had their own settlements in the hinterland. And together, the, uh, the English and the Maroons uh, attack the Spanish mule train uh, carrying silver across the Isthmus of Panama and make their fortune. Uh, so that's how they f- first met. But then um, Diego goes on to sail with Drake on his circumnavigation voyage in 1577 to 80. Uh, but then he, uh, unfortunately, he dies along the way from oh. an arrow wound because they uh, land on an island um, off the coast of Chile called Mocha Island and uh, get attacked by the, the inhabitants um, and uh, Diego uh, uh, sustains an arrow w- wound but it doesn't actually kill him for another year so it's possible oh, wow. that he becomes gangrenous later on or something so yeah it's not quite clear but he seems to have lived until they got as far as the Moluccas Chapter 4 of your book we, um, you look at this man called Edward Swarthy who actually whipped a high-ranking white servant 
um, on behalf of a man called Sir Edward Winter. Um, so yeah, I this is really fascinating because it sort of breaks down these stereotypical constructs that people might imagine of a, of a, a white man whipping a black man for example, and this flips that on its head. So tell me about the circumstances of this incident. So uh, it was punishment, really, for John Guy because he'd really angered his master, Sir Edward Winter. Um, And there's differing accounts as to why he was so angry, but um, John Guy was uh, in control of um, Edward Winter's ironworks, which was a substantial part of his property. And... uh, when one summer when uh, Edward Winter was away on business in London, John Guy runs off to Ireland with two of the other uh, two iron workers. Uh, it's not entirely clear why, but Edward Winter finds out and he's really angry that he like left the ironworks unmanaged at home. But uh, Edward Winter's got an ongoing feud with his neighbour James Buck, and James Buck thinks that. Um, you know, that Winter's particularly angry with Guy because Guy has just married Anne Buck, who was James Buck's daughter, which is a sort of big sign of disloyalty from from John Guy. Uh, And so um, there's a sort of day of reckoning when Edward Winter, you know, calls John Guy to see him in in his great hall at White Cross Manor in front of a crowd of sort of 20 men or so. And, uh, you know, berates him for everything that he's done and then uh, and then orders Edward Swarthy to whip him. And what views the significance of this? Like, why did you particularly want to include this in the book? What do you think it tells us? Well, I think it just inverts the, the stereotype. And, I mean, it, the, when I first found the, the record of this, um, I couldn't immediately read the document and the one word that jumped out at me was whip. And I just assumed that it was going to be the African being whipped by an Englishman, but it turned out to be the other way around. And that really, you know, says a lot, I think, about uh, what this what was going on in this period, that it wasn't, a, you know, the, it, there just wasn't the uh, relationship between black and white that, that, that developed later. Mm-hmm. What was Edward Swarthy's relationship with um, Edward Winter? They I mean, they share the same name, the first name, but what was their relationship? Well, I think that means that Edward Winter might well have been Edward Swarthy's godfather as well as his um, his master, uh, because that was quite a common occurrence that um, it, when Africans were baptised in England, they were baptised with the name of the godfather. Uh, you know, when Dedria Jakawa, the prince uh, of River Sestos, is baptised, he's called John, which is the name of the merchant he was staying with in England as well. Uh, so, so I think that's their relation, and, and then Edward Swarthy is working for Edward Winter as a porter, which was, you know, the person who stayed at the gate of the manor and uh, allowed people in or turned them away at the gate. The stories of of these Tudors. Why hasn't there been more research into this area? Do you think? I think as we talked about this a bit in the beginning. I I just think um, we. You know, we hadn't asked those questions before, uh, and the 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 records aren't that easy to find because there's not like a special archive just de- dedicated to to Black Tudors. Or, you know, when you go to an archive, it's usually organised in terms of people's surnames or dates, uh, and that doesn't make it very easy to find this sort of material. But you know, uh, hopefully there'll be more research done on it in the future. Um, do you think part of it is because we have this idea of the Tudor period being just white and, you know, 
you see it in tele- the television shows and the books that we have. You know, you just think of of white people, and that's what you see, and so that's what people sort of think was the case. And so yeah. these people get maybe forgotten or skimmed over if there is a mention of them in research. Yeah, I think uh, although it's slowly changing now, there are. I just saw a gunpowder, which is early Stuart, but um, there were a couple of black actors in that in the background, uh, which was good to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope there'll be more like that. Just to sort of sum up, why is it important to tell these stories? Well, I think it just challenges the idea that, that Tudors were all white, as, as you say, that is portrayed in, in films and novels and, and things like that. Um, and um, I think it also challenges the Windrush myth that the Africans only appeared here in the middle of the 20th century. And it shows that, that England had a much more diverse history over the centuries than, than we expect. That was Miranda Kaufman. Black Tudors, The Untold Story, is out now in the UK and the US, published by One World. And you can read a piece by Miranda in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale, with Elizabeth I and Lettuce Knowles on the cover. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Monday, when we'll be talking to Simon Heffer about Britain at the turn of the 20th century. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 